when I was 19 years old, I had a really formative, deeply personal experience. I uh, was part of a community of young people who signed up to join a discipling program or a leadership program uh, and it was a disciple development program with Churches of Christ in South Australia and we ended up going to Vanuatu. I spent a year preparing, so learning Bislama, which is the language, and learning about the culture and the customs and eventually I ended up heading to Vanuatu and I ended up in a little village called Limbian One and it was part of the island of Malakula uh, to get there, I had to uh, have a bush knife and bash my way through jungle with a guide who didn't speak English and uh, make my way all the way to this little village and then cross by this handmade lagoon. Uh, there was no running water, no electricity, no one spoke fluent English, so I did need to learn Bislama really quickly. And two 19-year-old guys with no adult supervision in a cyclone spent more than a month in this village. Uh, it was totally formative and something you would never be legally allowed to do in this day and age. <laughs> but it was wonderful. This is a picture of me in my house uh, and this is me making lap-lap uh, with banana. This is when I was overweight, as you can tell. Um, and <laughs> so look, I want to talk about a story or, uh, from, from this man. This is the pastor of the village. It was a Christian village. His name was Pastor James. This is his wife and where they're preparing banana lap lap, which we, we collected these bananas ourselves. And uh, Pastor James had actually been to Australia many years before, and uh, his English was pretty good. And I asked him a question, well, tell me about Australia. Now, what is your impression of my country? I, I think that's a fascinating question to ask someone who isn't from Australia. And he said three things. He said, well, uh, there are three things that uh, remind me of Australia. The first thing is that everyone smokes. The second thing is that people don't say hello. And the third thing is that everyone has fences. Now, I was quite curious. I'm like, they're not the three things I would typically uh, assess Australians by. So I said, Pastor James, tell me more about this. And so he said, okay, well, firstly, everyone smokes. So I went to, I think it was Adelaide, and it was in winter. And I went outside in the morning and I went, and I smoked. And he said, in Vanuatu, no one smokes, it's too hot. And in my village, no one smokes. So I, um, I came back to uh, my village and I said to all the young people, guess what, I went to Australia and your pastor smoked. And uh, that was a no-no back there. So I knew he had a good sense of humour at the time. Uh, the second thing he said is, people don't say hello, they're not friendly. And uh, I understood that. I mean, in Vanuatu, you're walking through the jungle, um, bashing your way with a bush knife, and someone will actually chase you for uh, a kilometre and then provide you with some food or some drink just because they see a stranger um, you know, along past their village or past their hut. Whereas, you know, Pastor James said, I walked along Rundle Mall and no one said hello. Um, everyone looked down and no one was being friendly, and so that was interesting. But the third comment really stood out to me. And that's about fences. And he said, in Australia, in Vanuatu, we share everything. We, we share our food. We care for each other's kids. We are a community. Um, and yet, in Australia, you have this funny thing where you put this fence around your house. And it's not a security fence. It's not to like, protect you. It's just to say, this is my house. And that's not yours. Uh, it it kind of keeps people in and out. And, and when I thought about it, it really stuck in my mind as being 
just fascinating from a culture where they shared everything and just showed how individualistic and how in and out and how separate we were in Australia. So look, that stuck with me for a long, long time, the idea of what it might look like to live without fences and to be more like the communities I experienced in Vanuatu in Lembinwan village compared to my experience of having a fence around my house, around my heart, around my time and around my life. And that stuck with me for a long, long time. So a decade later, uh, after I'd met Kylie and we'd gotten married, we, we moved to Tasmania in 2005 and I, I kept imagining, we kept imagining what might it look like to have a house with no fences. So we entered in into share housing. Uh, I first lived with Ant, actually, when I moved to... There is Ant, when I moved into Tassie. Uh, Ant and another guy called Paulie and Kylie and I shared this tiny little unit for over three years. I had different flatmates come in and out, but we stayed there for a long time. Uh, we had Naomi, which is our first daughter, and, and, um, and we experienced what it meant to you know, live in each other's pockets and to share every meal together and the good and the bad of, of doing dishes and doing life uh, in the everyday with less fences with people. Uh, about that time, we met Michael and Julia Vidal, so they're other close friends of ours. They are on sabbatical, but they'll be back soon. And, uh, and they were living in share housing with another couple, and they had had Aja, who was their first child, and were living with another community and another flatmate. And all of us had this passion to live in community and to have an experience of life with less fences. But uh, at the same time, having kids was actually quite tough, and we wanted to have more space and more, you know, I suppose, middle-classness of our own, and yet still have the ability to live life and share and commute. And so, as a result of that, we ended up buying a piece of land in South Hobart. Uh, a lot of you have been to my house, so it's a cold, dark piece of land. Uh, it had rubbish on it at the time, which had been dumped there from the local housing. And uh, not many, it had been on the market for ages, no one wanted it. But Michael saw potential in it, uh, and because he's an architect, we saw potential in it. And so we connected as two families, and after 18 months of a whole lot of prayer and hard work and, and moving things through council, we ended up with two houses on the same piece of land, with no fences, with a vision and a hope to live life in a more connected way. So this is our, uh, our land, ours is at the top, uh, Michael and Julia is at the bottom, and um, so we share lots of stuff. This is, this is us at the time when we moved in, over 10 years ago now. Uh, we had three children between us. Mimi was just born at the time. And I would say that we didn't quite get grass and all that over there, but our land pretty much looks like it did back then anyway. <laughs> so, um, so look, we uh, did a lot of different things. We have shared a uh, shared garden. We have this is us preparing the lawn, which never actually grew. We um, have shared trampolines and a barbecue area. We share chickens. So there's a sense where we share life, and we've had many neighbours come and go and jump on our trampoline and hang out with us around the fire. And yet we also own our houses, and so we have this separateness and, and this togetherness, which we really like. Uh, but at the same time, you can live next door to someone and actually not really deeply connect in a spiritual way, not really have community. And one of the things we found after a number of years is that, well, at least even a number of months, is that um, when we were building the houses together, we had this shared vision, this shared rhythm, and all this kind of shared stuff because we were building something and it was a dream. But it didn't take too long until we realised, gosh, our lives are busy, and we could actually live as next-door neighbours and actually not bump into each other that much. 
And of course, we'd see each other and we would talk about logistics like, hey, will you take my kids today and or will you take my kids tomorrow? But in terms of the everyday kind of faith stuff or vision or community, you can live next door to someone and actually not connect. And so we soon realised that we needed more than just living together. We actually had barriers in our heart, in our, in our heads, in our minds, in our rhythms. And so this idea of rhythms came up. And we knew that if we wanted to actually be a community with no fences, we would need more than just live close to each other. We would actually have to create rhythms of shared life around the intentional rhythms that build community. Do you follow? And so we started to think, well, what type of rhythms would connect? And we, we didn't want to add something to our already busy life because we were all exhausted. It needed to fit into the everyday rhythms of life. I mean, young families, young kids. And yet, at the same time, it needed to be something that would help us connect as a community and to connect deeply and spiritually. And so we just thought, well, what if we just started by eating a meal together once a week? A simple meal on a Wednesday night that we share once at our house and then the next fortnight, one at Mick and Jules's house. And we just rotate it. We just cook a little bit more food than we would normally cook and we just eat as a rhythm once a week, every Wednesday night. Um, as a pattern, as a predictable pattern to help connect us as two families and to build community. Uh, it wasn't an amazing meal. You know, we'd cook some spaghetti bolognese, we'd cook soups, have bread. So it wasn't necessarily an enormous amount of effort. Uh, you know, Wednesdays were always noisy and busy, especially with young kids. We would say grace, say thanks, we'd pray together holding hands around the table and, and then we'd go home after a bit, of, you know, a bit of time, put the kids to sleep. And we just started this rhythm, week in, week out. And we did it for a long time. Uh, over time, we invited friends. We invited some neighbours. Uh, we started to connect with other people in our relational networks, in our relational world. And, uh, but we just kept con continuing this dinner, this simple rhythm. And there was a moment, I call it a Kairos moment or a God moment, a, a moment where I just thought, ah, oh, this was really significant to me. And, and, I don't know, it's about two, three years in. And I was sitting there, we'd eaten our dinner. I was doing the dishes. That's, you know, it, it looks very servant-hearted to do the dishes, but I'm an introvert, and it's my way of getting away from the conversation. So I just actually do the dishes, and, and it works really well. So I'm doing the dishes, and I was just looking around, and there was Michael in some kind of deep, existential conversation about music with a friend. And you had Arja, and she was, uh, little Caleb was sitting on her lap, and she was reading him a book. And I think... Um, uh, Julia and Kylie were sitting there drinking wine with some friends and having a conversation and uh, I think you know, Mimi and Naomi were bickering over some toy or something and I just remember thinking, wow, this is like, it's like a family. It feels and looks like family to me. You know, we were moving as a pack and, and it was organic and it was spontaneous. You know, we didn't have a roster and we didn't have rules about who should do this and who should do that but, but we just did life together and it became like an extended family. And I realized that simple rhythm of just eating once a week transformed our lives and started to transform who we were. Uh, and because we were transformed, it therefore started to transform those around us. Over time, uh, we started to invite more and more people who weren't believers in Jesus, people who didn't follow Christ, and, and uh, shared our table with people who were friends, who we loved, uh, and as well as that, we had other people join us. So flatmates uh, were always involved in our life. And then eventually, uh, one of our flatmates, Hannah, moved out and uh, Alice moved in and became a neighbour and joined our community. Uh, now Chris and Alice live 
really close and a part of our community. We've had other people uh, come and go and connect in deeply. We've got Kevin Tash, who are now part of the community. And so it became not just a dinner, but it became a missional community where we have a, missional t uh, a mission to reach our street and our neighbourhood. And, and we call ourselves Stones because we live on Livingston Street, but it's also from 1 Peter uh, where the, uh, Paul says that we are to be little stones uh, who worship the big stone who is Jesus. And, and so we are to be small stones who connect and bless and, and are like life around us, connecting people in the neighbourhood and actually just being the life of Jesus around a table. Um, and it's been a really good journey. So here are some pictures. Uh, this is what we call big dinner. It's big dinner now. Every fortnight we have at least 20, 25 people and we have lots of different people from around the neighbourhood, uh, which is great. And we have regulars from the neighbourhood. We kind of have, a, we have the big dinner circuit now where we actually now rotate to other houses in the neighbourhood, which is just great. Um, so, you know, we'll eat at uh, dinner inside in winter. Sometimes we'll eat outside in summer and uh, we can make it a bigger barbecue or, or something a bit more life-giving and life-filled. Uh, we also have street fires, so we have a little fire pit and we'll, we'll light fires and, and invite the neighbourhood, which is just great. A great way to connect people who don't feel as comfortable just hanging around in a house. It's always a lot of fun. We always eat way too much sugar. Uh, and we also have big chops. So every, we haven't done it so well this year, but every six weeks we would normally catch up and, and cut a whole lot of stuff up. So we would basically prepare the food for the next six weeks together. It's a great way, because you have to prepare the food anyway. So why not make it social and drink wine and have a conversation? And we have a shared freezer where we'll put the food away so we can just pull it out every time we cook and then reheat it, which works in the busyness of everyday life. So, look, I suppose what we've been doing now is just a meal once a week for a decade. We've been doing it for about ten and a half years. And I calculated, as I prepared for this talk, that that's over 500 shared meals. It's amazing. I just think it's amazing that we've done 500 shared meals just for big dinner, let alone all the other meals we've shared in our community. And, um, and I really want to honour Kylie and Julia particularly because out of all the meals, they have by far cooked the most and they're amazing women and have done an incredible job. Um, and I'm very thankful for the stories that we've had by simply sharing a meal once a week. Now, on one hand, on the one hand, I know this sounds a bit utopian, it sounds perfect, sounds amazing, and it's not. <laughs> it's really messy, we've had a whole lot of struggles with it, uh, it's difficult on our time, it's time, it costs you in time to eat regularly with others. Uh, it's costly on the wallet, not hugely, but there is a sacrifice, and it's costly in terms of energy, you know, being an introvert, it's taken me a lot of time to walk in, get used to walking into a house of 20 people when I come home from work. But it's amazing. You know, even a few years ago, I was wondering, do we give this up because it is so hard and because we've had so many tough conversations and so many tough times. But I wouldn't want life in any other way. It is just wonderful. When Jethro said the other day, who's coming to dinner, Mum? And we just said, no one, it's just us. And he started, how can we don't have anyone to dinner? I want to have someone to dinner. You're all so boring. You know, and you know, once I got over that, which took a bit of time, yep, I remember thinking, wow, how cool is that? Like, when I grew up, I would never have asked the question, who is coming to dinner? 
because we hardly ever had someone to dinner, whereas I love that our kids are growing up with spiritual uncles and aunties and community and relationships and lots of involvement. They're part of our mission. They're part of our vision. Jethro said, when I grow up, I want to plant a church. I'm like, how cool is that? You know, so I just I love that, that around the dinner table, our kids' experience of church is not a service and it's not a program. Their primary experience of church is community around a table. And so I believe that hospitality is radical. I truly do. I believe that the simple act of opening up your home, your fridge and your table can transform your life and the lives of those around you who do not know the love of Christ. And it can transform our neighbourhoods and ultimately I believe it can transform our world. It is the countercultural practice of our time and it's rooted deeply in the life of Jesus, in the life of the early church. And we can reclaim this simple practice of eating together today. Which is why I'm here speaking about radical hospitality. And look, if you don't live in an amazing house, if you don't live next to anyone else, that doesn't matter. It's not actually about that. It's about the rhythms, but more so it's about the heart. It's about our posture and our willingness to open our lives to others and to be generous and to, to share with the other. You follow? Anyone can do hospitality, which is why Jesus did so much eating and drinking with other people. So let's look at the scriptures and be inspired by our Lord and Saviour because as apprentices of Jesus, he shows us how to live. And I want to start with this scripture, which is Luke 7, Gospel of Luke, uh, 33 to 34. John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine. And you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came, now Jesus is saying this about himself, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. So the context of this passage is that Jesus is speaking to the crowds of people. And think of it like a stage, okay? You've got Jesus here, you've got the crowds, just everyday ordinary folk like you and I, and then you have religious people, the Pharisees who controlled the system and had lots of rules and regulations for how you had to act, what you should do and what you shouldn't do. You know, my, my pastor in Bender used to say they had the hardening, hardening of the arteries because you ought to do this and you ought to do that. Okay, so you had the Pharisees and you had the crowds. And then Jesus just speaks and he says, on the one hand, you have the crowds. And the crowds had gone into the wilderness and they'd been baptised by John the Baptist. Now, he was a bit of a weird kind of crazy guy. Okay, so the, the scriptures say that he wore clothes made of camel hair he ate wild locusts with honey and he, conf- and he went into the wilderness and said, confess your sins, the kingdom of God is coming. So he was a pretty strange guy. He was like a typical prophet. But the, the crowds saw God in him and they believed in him and so they followed him. But the Pharisees didn't say that. The Pharisees said he had a demon because he was so strange, so kind of ascetic. 
And yet on the other hand, Jesus comes and he's eating and drinking and doing all the party type things. He doesn't look at all like John. I don't know what he wore, but maybe he had kind of stylish clothes. I don't know, but he looked nothing like John the Baptist. And then they, they still criticized him. They said, well, look at you. You're a glutton. You're a drunkard. You're a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You hang out with all the wrong people all the time. And look, I just think that's remarkable that Jesus was accused by the religious people of the day of being a glutton and a drunkard. Think about it. Put a smile on your face. I looked up the definition of a glutton, okay, in the highly reliable Google dictionary, and, uh, and it says a glutton is an excessively greedy eater. So basically they constantly eat more than is good for them. Okay, so Jesus is a glutton. Uh, this would be my heaven. I love donuts. Um, this is probably my image of heaven as well. And, uh, but you wouldn't ever feel sick after eating that many donuts. And then um, a drunkard. Okay, so a drunkard is a person who is habitually drunk. Okay, so think about it. Our Lord and Saviour was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard, which I just think is amazing. Now, he wasn't. Jesus had no sin. He didn't overdrink and he didn't eat in excess. And yet there must have been something about the way he lived his life that would earn him a reputation of being a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And uh, look, so we have this image of Jesus, lovely Jesus. He floats through the air, kind of like this mystical ghost man. Uh, He's meek and mild. He's very holy. He's very pure. You know, this is kind of like the image that many of us hold of Jesus. And yet, you wouldn't accuse someone that looks like this of being a glutton and a drunkard, would you? I don't know. In fact, I won't say anything about what I'd... But, um, but this is the Jesus that I, I think could be a glutton and a drunkard. You know, laughing Jesus. A Jesus who can connect with your humanity. A Jesus who ate and drank and hung out with all the wrong people, which is what you see in Scripture. And it's really quite a beautiful Jesus. Someone who loved too much, who laughed too much, who spent too much time being with all the wrong people because they wanted to hang out with him. We need to recapture the image of Jesus who was a human as well as God because it's that human Jesus who we want to eat with and it's that human Jesus we want to share a table with. So the Gospel of Luke refers to Jesus enjoying food and drink at least 50 times. 50 times! He's enjoying food and drink. It's only a small book, the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Matthew, there are 94 references to him eating and drinking. That's pretty amazing. Okay, so theologian, theologian Robert Caris, uh, in Eating Your Way Through Luke's Gospel, says this. In Luke's Gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, he is at a meal, or he is coming from a meal. That's my type of God. do you reckon? Um, Mike Breen, who has trained us in how to apprentice people, we we love his huddle stuff, but um, he says this, if you take the mountains and the meals out of the Bible, it's a very short book. (laughs) How cool is that? Imagine going around cutting all the mountains and and the meals out of the Bible. Well, basically, you don't have very much left of the New Testament, particularly the Gospels, and I just think we forget this. Uh, Look, much, um, much of our religion is not necessarily based on eating and drinking, and yet it should be. Because if we're going to follow Jesus, then we need to take seriously radical hospitality, which I think that's really exciting. So look, not only did he eat and drink, 
Uh, it was his primary strategy for what he did when he came to earth. So I just want to read these three passages. Uh, the Son of Man came. So the Son of Man refers to Jesus, okay? And so the Son of Man came is used three times in the New Testament. One in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, in Luke 19, we hear it again. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And then in Luke 7, which we read before, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. Now, what I love about this, if you look at these three statements together, the first two statements are why statements. They are about his purpose. Why did Jesus come to earth? He came not to serve, but to, not to be served, but to serve. He came in order to give his life as a ransom for many. That is the why. Okay? He came to seek and save the lost. But the third statement that Jesus came, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, that's actually not a why statement. It's a method statement. It's a how statement. Okay? It's a statement about how he actually functioned. It's a statement about what was Jesus' strategy. So how did he come and serve? How did he seek and save? Well, he came eating and drinking, which I think is pretty remarkable. Tim Chester in A Meal with Jesus says this, Jesus was a party animal. His mission strategy was a long meal stretching into the evening. He did evangelism, evangelism and discipleship around a table with some grilled fish, a loaf of bread and a pitcher of wine. He continues, this is in a book called A Meal with Jesus. He says this, If I pull down books on mission and church planting from my shelves, I can read about contextualization, evangelism matrices, postmodern apologetics and cultural hermeneutics. I can look at diagrams that tell people how to be converted or discover the steps required to plant a church. It all sounds very impressive, cutting edge and sophisticated. But this is how Luke describes Jesus' mission strategy. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. Full stop. It's beautiful. So simple. So if we are to be an apprentice of Jesus, which means that we are to be like him and learn from him, then we need to somehow recapture what it means to eat and drink like Jesus. 1 John 2 verse 6 says this, Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus lived. And I have rewritten this, the uh, NRD, as I said last time, so New Revised Daniel Version, which is whoever claims to live in him must eat as Jesus did. Because that's essentially what Jesus did when he was on earth. If we are to be his apprentices, we need to learn to eat like Jesus, which I think is pretty cool. And so... What does it mean for us to do this in practice? And how can we take this principle into our lives as 21st century apprentices of Jesus? And, and so to explain that, I actually want to tackle a, a proverbial saying, which you've probably all heard, right? Uh, a man's home is his castle. A man's home is his castle. Now, I love Daryl Kerrigan, and uh, this is an awesome movie. But when it comes to being an apprentice of Jesus, I have to disagree with his statement. Okay? A man's home is his castle. 
In other words, it's our place of retreat. Our home is our sanctuary. Our home is our safe place. It's our special place. It belongs to me. Well, I just have to disagree with that. The thing about a castle, a castle has moats. A castle has uh, ramps. A castle has bridges and uh, walls and big fences and, and a, a castle is designed to keep you in and to keep others out. It's not necessarily the most apt description of what our house should be as an apprentice of Jesus. Now what if, what if instead of being a sanctuary or a castle, we saw our homes and our houses as missional outposts? as places where the kingdom of God could come and we could see lives transformed. We could see family communicated, we could see lives restored. What if instead of our homes being our sanctuary, they could be a missional outpost, a place where people could experience food and wine and laughter and hospitality and they could meet Jesus? Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't have boundaries. I'm not saying we just open our homes and we never have any safe spaces. Please don't hear me wrong. Our, our home needs to be a place where we can retreat and we can feel safe. It's our home. And yet I think we also need to challenge our idea that our home is a castle because I think it's much more than that. As apprentices of Jesus, we no longer own our homes. We no longer own our, own our tables and we no longer own our fridges. We no longer own our lives. They died with us when we were crucified with Christ and, and as we are resurrected, they are resurrected into a new way of being, which is challenging for us. But I wonder what would happen if we were known as the people who ate meals with others regularly and that we could see the kingdom of God come one meal at a time in our own places. Wouldn't that be amazing? John Tyson, uh, who wrote a book called Sacred Roots, says this, what would the church look like if we chose to buy homes in the same street and subdivisions, the same buildings and blocks, the same suburbs and sections? What would our love look like if it showed up dozens of times a week in small but profound ways? Meals cooked, prayers prayed, songs sung, scriptures studied, games played, parties thrown, tears shed, reconciliation practiced, resources given what if we stopped attending community groups and became groups of communities what if our homes stopped being the places we hid from the world but havens to which the world comes for healing what if wouldn't that be amazing if our houses our communities could look a little bit more like jesus So can you see how radical hospitality can be? Yeah? How challenging? This is a challenging message, but it's a beautiful and simple message. Open your home, open your fridge, open your table, and indeed your life, and let Jesus come in. At Together Church, we are a newly forming church community. We're a little community and we are growing. Uh, we are forming and, and my heart for this series is that eating a meal together on a regular basis with others in this room can be the first step, the next step to us growing as a community together. You know, we have a vision that this service will grow to become a vibrant service, you know, 100 to 120 people, and this is the first step. 
Um, but it's not about the service. You know, we want this service to be a hub which becomes a training hub and a sending hub that we have a service in order to release people and train people to open up their houses and to eat meals together and to start new initiatives and to do amazing things in the suburbs where community is part of the fabric of everyday life and the kingdom of God comes in everyday places wherever we live where we can see missional communities and people groups who eat together and pray together and learn and serve together where they, we can see that as a network in and around this thing which we call a church service. And that's the heartbeat of why we do what we do. We want to be together in this and we want to see community birthed in the suburbs of Hobart and to transform it one life, one meal at a time. You follow? Yeah. And so, look, there are people here that I've never eaten with, which is kind of rare because um, I love eating with people. So, you know, and there are people here who you've never eaten with. And so I would encourage you, my challenge is in the next week, in the next fortnight, to, to go up to someone who you don't know that well in this community and invite them around for a meal. Have a coffee, eat together, get to know each other. You know, my heart is for us to form as a community and then to invite others in and to be part of this vision and this mission as a church. So my question really is, what might it look like for you to lower your fences and your defences and to do community in a deeper way? What might it look like for you to lower your fences and defences and do community in a deeper way? What might it look like to open your home, your table and your fridge, in fact your life, in a, in a more open way? Which is so challenging in our culture, but we can do it and it's enriching and beautiful. What might it look like to eat and pray and learn and serve together in an organic family type way, to be a family on a mission and to invite the lost and the broken and those who are alone to be part of it? You know, it is radical, it's costly and it's counter-cultural, but Jesus did it and it's not hard, it's just, it, it, it's simple but it's hard <laughs> and there's a difference. And so, I listened to a sermon by one of my favourite speakers, John Mark Comer from Portland, and he was speaking about neighbourliness. And he said to his congregation, his community, I dare you in the name of Jesus to eat together as a community. And so I would like to copy that call, and I dare you in the name of Jesus to eat a meal with someone from this community this week. And then to do it again another week, and then do it another week, and then over time see what happens. Now, I dare you in the name of Jesus to open your home, your table, and your fridge, and to just have one meal. Um, and, and when I say this, don't make it flashy and don't make it expensive. We are not talking a dinner party. We are not talking entertainment. That is an entirely different thing altogether. We are talking a rough and ready family meal, a rough and ready meal that you happen to share with someone else. You follow? There's a big difference, yeah? It's not about prestige, it's just about hospitality and openness. Uh, if you can't cook, look up YouTube, spaghetti bolognese, it's not that complicated. Uh, even, I'll, even cheese toasties is fine if it's done with love. All right. So cooking shouldn't be the barrier to this. If you don't own a home, or if you don't own a table, then use your floor. So I remember um, our house on Waterworks Road, we didn't have a table and for three years we ate on the floor and we had dinner parties with a blanket and it was awesome. So you don't need a table and if your house is not good enough or if you don't feel you can invite people to your house, 
then invite yourself to other people's houses. And that's what Jesus did. He sent his disciples to eat at other people's houses. In fact, Jesus didn't have a house. All of his eating and drinking were when he invited himself. Hey, Zacchaeus, yep, little man up there, I'm hungry. Can I come to your house? I mean, that's how you do it, right? So you, know, you can invite yourself to other people's houses. Maybe bring something, bring a meal. Um, there's no excuse. It's not about how good it is. It's about the heart of being a community and doing it as a rhythm over time. One meal at a time and Jesus will transform the world. Now stand up if you can. We are going to share communion. And I just want to read out these three scriptures again. The Son of Man came not to serve, be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And, you know, I just love this because as we head into communion, we remember that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. He came to seek and save the lost. We are lost without him. He came to give his life, his very life as a ransom for many, that our sins, our shame, our brokenness, our faults and failures we put on him and that we will be made right because he died and rose again. Isn't it amazing? That is his why. That is why he came. And yet how do we remember that he came to give his life as a ransom for many? How do we remember that he died and rose again and forgave us of our sins? How do we remember? We eat bread. We drink a cup. How awesome is Jesus? The way we remember is the way he came. Eating and drinking a meal as a community that is spirit-filled, full of God's love.